you uh, have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to open that to Luke chapter 16. In the uh, Black Pew Bibles under the seat in front of you, uh, that's on page 876. Uh, so as we, as we read the Bible, one of the things that is tremendously important for us to understand and to uh, recognize is context. Right? The Bible is not just a, a collection of sayings. Right? It's not just a, a compilation of fortune cookies. Uh, of of individual little nuggets that stand on their own. But everything that we read in the Bible is part of a larger story that was revealed over the course of thousands of years. Different authors, different contexts, but one contiguous story about how God is saving his people and his creation from their rebellion and all of its consequences. And one of the hazards is when we, when we kind of parachute into one particular passage and don't pay attention to the context, is that we can misunderstand it and we can misapply it, right? We need to understand the historical context, right? What's going on in the world around, around Israel? We need to understand the cultural context, right? The people that the text is about, who it was that it was written to. And we also need to understand the, the textual context, right? What, just, what happened right before what we're reading? What happened right after? Um, and that is why, generally, in our time together on Sunday mornings, we're moving through a book of the Bible sequentially, right? So if we ended last week in verse 14, where are we going to start next week? We're going to start in verse 15, and then we're going to do a little bit more and pick up where we left off the next week. Uh, because in doing that, we get the correct context for what's going on. We understand what happened before so that we can better understand what's happening right now. And so chapter 16 so far has been a discourse on how we relate to wealth and power and influence, all the shiny things of this world. And we read the parable of the dishonest manager. And we learned how we must use the things that are temporary to secure the things that are eternal. So how we use and invest the wealth and the power and the influence that we have been given reveals whether we are prepared for the kingdom of heaven. And then we saw how Jesus told us that we cannot serve both God and money. If we are loving God, if we are serving God, if we are worshiping God, then we will use the things that we have in our possession to reshape the world in a way that better reflects who he is. But in contrast, if we are loving and serving ourselves, then we will use the resources that we have to reshape the world in, in our favor, in my favor, to make it more comfortable for me, to make it look the way that I think it should look. Now, one of the group of people who was listening to all of this was the Pharisees. And they were, Jesus says, lovers of money. Now, they professed to be believers. They said that they loved God. And they did all of the things that made them look like believers from the outside. But underneath their exterior behavior, they were really only interested in, in money, in power, in position, in influence. They were only interested in the things that were going to make their lives more comfortable. And they justified it, right? They made it look right. They made it look like they were doing everything correctly by wrapping that up in the cloak of the law. They said that they were doing what they were doing because they were just being faithful. But their hearts weren't really motivated by faithfulness. Their hearts were motivated by a love of the things of this world. So Jesus pointed out that it is their sin, revealed by the law, that is keeping them out of the kingdom. 
And if they are going to claim entry into the kingdom by their obedience to the law, then they need to follow the whole thing. Not just the sacrifices and the festivals and the tithing, but love, justice, and mercy. So Jesus is going to go on today and tell a parable as a warning to those rich Pharisees and to us today. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things, and now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he, that is the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So this is one of those places that if we don't pay attention to the context, we might miss the point. So this is not primarily intended to be an instruction about what happens after death. And if we just took this one parable and pulled it out and looked at it all by itself, we might miss the point of it. Because it is primarily the summation. This is the final point that Jesus is making to these Pharisees as a warning to those who are rich and comfortable. He is, in this parable, in essence, pointing his finger at the Pharisees and everyone else who is trusting in the shiny things of this world and telling them that unless they repent... They are lost. This parable is the conclusion of everything that he has been saying all through chapter 16. So we've got these two characters, right? We've got the rich man. Now, this is not just a rich man. This man is obscenely rich. Uh, so the, the purple dye is important. That would have been very, very expensive. Uh, it, uh, so he had all of the best clothing. He was always feasting, right? There's a difference between Thanksgiving dinner and what you have for breakfast on a Tuesday morning, right? There's a difference. We, we understand that, that. Not for him. Not for him. Every day was a feast. Every meal was a feast. The guy had more money than he knew what to do with. And then there's Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is a, is a little interesting. If you remember, like looking back at the parable of the prodigal son, none of the characters in Jesus' parables have names. They're just the son, 
the father, the older son, the younger son, the shepherd. Right? But Lazarus has a name. And his name means something to the effect of the one who God helps. And it fits. Right? That, that fits with Lazarus's character because nobody is helping him. He longed for and presumably didn't get the crumbs from the rich man's table. Right? He wasn't looking for the place of honor. He didn't want to be as powerful or as rich as the rich man. He just wanted the bits of food that were falling on the floor off of his table. And he didn't even get that. He got nothing. Nobody helped him. Nobody cared for him. Nobody loved him. He was so helpless and so friendless that the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now, there's two different ways that you can kind of read that. Um, but really, he was so helpless and so friendless, so powerless that he couldn't even defend himself from the stray dogs who were coming to take advantage of him. His only hope and his faith was that God would save him, as his name says. And then they both died. And that's one of the important things to remember here. Our time on this earth, in this life, has a definite end. Every single one of us. For the rich man, the party ends. For Lazarus, his suffering ends. And so whether your life is filled with suffering or whether it is filled with all of the comforts you can imagine, one of two things will happen. Either you will die or Jesus will come back. And in either case, your experience in this beautiful, broken world will come to an end, and it will be replaced with something else. And what it will be replaced with is the kingdom of heaven, where all wrongs are righted, all tears are dried, and sin and death find their end. And in a lot of ways, it it seems like it's going to look like this world, like this life, like this creation, but it's also distinctly different. It is completely and absolutely upside down. It is completely upside down. Right? So the rich man, who in his life, in his earthly life, lived a life of comfort and ease, was no longer in comfort and ease. He was in torment. But Lazarus, who had lived the most miserable existence in this life, in the kingdom of heaven, stands in a place of honor, at Abraham's side, heir to all of the promises of God. The rich man who had all of the comforts that this world could purchase is in anguish, looking for relief, looking for comfort. Now, previously, the whole world was arrayed at his command, right? He could snap his fingers and get anything that he wanted. And now, in the parable, he seeks to command Lazarus to make him comfortable where he is once more. And Abraham points out to him, that's not how it works here. Lazarus lived an uncomfortable life of suffering and deprivation, having God as his only comfort. But now, in the kingdom of heaven, he has all that he could ever want, all that he could ever need. Whereas in this life, the rich man lived a life of comfort, not caring about the situations that others found themselves in. He used his wealth, he used his power for his own ends, to build himself up, to make himself comfortable, to love himself. And now that the kingdom of com has come, all of that wealth is worthless and pointless 
And this man, this rich man, is suffering. He is dying. And it's important to note here, he doesn't ask for another chance. He doesn't ask to be set free. He doesn't want freedom. He doesn't want to choose differently. He just wants for his choice to be comfortable again. His heart is so hard that he cannot ask for mercy. He cannot ask for forgiveness. Because he is getting what he always wanted. A life set free from God. And this choice that he has made appears to be permanent. He doesn't ask for a second chance. And Abraham talks about this vast gulf that is separating the two. So the rich man seems to be accepting his fate. And he asks Abraham to send Lazarus as a warning to his family. Because they'll listen if somebody rises from the dead. But Abraham points out they have the law and the prophets. They have all of the Old Testament scriptures. They have everything they need. And if they will follow it, if they will listen to it, then they will be able to avoid the torment that this man is suffering. And the implication here is that this man realizes that he and his brothers did not follow the law. They neglected the weightier matters of the law, even if they were following the small details. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. This is where Jesus is poking his finger right into the hard heart of these Pharisees. That is what the Pharisees were doing. They were neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And this is what this man and his brothers did. So even if they looked like they were being obedient by checking off all the boxes, the Lord judges them by their hearts. And they were missing the point. They neglected the love of God that results in a love of neighbor. Specifically here, specifically, this man had the opportunity to love Lazarus, to welcome him, to feed him, to clothe him, to care for him. Because Lazarus sat right outside of his gate. And he didn't do it. They loved and served money, comfort, possessions, the shiny things of this world, rather than loving and serving God. But like Jesus said a couple of weeks ago, you can't do both. You can't serve both God and money. So the rich man tells Abraham to send Lazarus, send him back from the dead so that they will believe. Abraham says, even if somebody comes back from the dead, they are still not going to be convinced. Now, a little bit later in the timeline, uh, we read in John 11, the story of a man named Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, demonstrating and, and proving who Jesus was and what he could do. And you know what happened with the Pharisees? They weren't convinced. In fact, they tried to have Lazarus killed to keep him quiet. And a little bit after that, spoiler, Jesus is going to die and he is going to rise from the dead. And the Pharisees were the architects of that death. And when he rose again, they conspired to try and keep it quiet. They loved and they served and they worshipped the wealth and the power and the prestige and the honor of this world. They sought to get themselves just as far ahead as they could, to climb the ladder, to squeeze the most that they could out of this life. And Jesus is saying here that to seek those things, to be motivated by those things, is anathema to the kingdom. You cannot serve both God and money. 
And when we are loving, seeking, trusting, and worshiping the things of this world, we are revealing that our hearts do not love God. And one day, these Pharisees will discover that all of these riches, all of this power, all of that prestige that they had sought after is worthless, and pointless, and that it never really mattered at all. And actually worse than worthless, all of those things will be liabilities rather than assets. James wrote in James 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This indictment from James points directly at the rich man from this parable. Those who are rich, those who have clung to the things of this world as their hope and as their security, those who have denied their brothers and sisters their daily bread to line their own pockets, all of the results of that oppression and injustice will stand as a witness against them, revealing and testifying that they have loved themselves and their comfort and their money instead of loving God, instead of loving the people around them. Now to his disciples, the call that Jesus gives originally to them is very simple. He says, follow me. Follow me. And when he speaks to each one of those people and every other person afterwards who heard that call, there's a decision to make. There's a choice to weigh. So on the one hand, you have all of the things in this world that are going for you. Your career, your family, your wealth, your pop popularity, your self-importance, your self-righteousness. You can pursue, pursue those things. You can seek after those things. You can build those things up. You can invest in those things. And you might achieve all that you set out to achieve. You might become fabulously wealthy. You might become respectably comfortable. You might be able to achieve the relationship that you have longed for. You might not just become wealthy, but powerful. Maybe not in, a, in an international, you know, global politics sort of way, but you might seek and achieve to become a respected member of the local community. You might seek to become known as a good person, as a kind person, charitable person. You might seek to be known as the sort of person who gets things done or can always accomplish everything that they set their mind to. You can seek all of those things and you might even be able to achieve them. That is what is on the one hand. On the other hand, you have Jesus offering, well, what it, whatever it is that he's offering. Because it's not always clear to the disciples what it is that he's offering. But when he calls Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, what does he say? He says, follow me. 
And Matthew recognizes there is something here. And he gets up. And he leaves it all behind. He walks away from his old life. He walks away from the wealth. He walks away from the power. He walks away from his career. And he follows Jesus. Now we know, we know through the Bible, through the word of God, a little bit more. We know that Jesus offers us forgiveness. That our sin and our rebellion against him will be forgiven and forgotten. And all of the ways that we have harmed and been harmed by others will be repaired and restored. We know that in him we have redemption. That we and the mess of our lives will not just be forgotten and swept away, but that we have been purchased out of our slavery to sin and to death. And we know that both of these things were accomplished by the death of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God on the cross. And we know that in him we have an abundant eternal life that will transcend and overcome death itself. And we know that in him we have the hope of a redeemed and restored creation and adoption as sons and daughters by our Heavenly Father. But the trouble is these are, these are kind of abstract concepts. It's difficult to lay hold of an idea like that. And I'm not entirely sure that we even have the capacity to understand what those things really mean. We cannot envision how wonderful they are. But that lack of understanding doesn't affect the call. Jesus says, come, follow me. The uncertainty of that call means that there are going to be certain groups of people who are more likely to answer that call. The poor, the broken, the lame, the unclean, the sinners, the rejects, they're more likely to look at the worthless mess that is their lives and say, okay, I'm in. I got nothing going for me here, so whatever it is that he's offering, it's got to be better than what I have. But on the other hand, the rich and the powerful, the comfortable, the the influential, they always have a hard time answering Jesus's call. Because if they're going to leave all of this stuff behind them, they need to know that they're making a good trade, that it's worth it. They need to know that if they're, that they uh, are going to give all of these things up to follow Jesus, there is going to be some sort of reward in the end, and that it's all going to be worth it. And Jesus offers some of those reassurances, right? He, he did hundreds of miracles, more than we have recorded in the Bible. We have his resurrection. All of these things offer confirmation that he is able to do all that he said he could do. But ultimately, to do what the disciples did, to respond that way, is an act of faith. Jesus said, follow me. And they got up and they followed him, not knowing where they were going. Because to follow him is to leave behind everything else, to give up on everything else, to forsake everything else. This is what Jesus said back in uh, Luke 9, a few months back. He said to all, if any would come after me, if anyone is going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And there's sort of a parallel 
paradox there in, in Luke chapter 14, when he says that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if we are seeking to make our lives as big and as important as possible, if we are exalting ourselves and trying to hold on to our lives, then in the end, in the end, our lives will be nothing. And even that nothing will be taken away from us. But if, in following Jesus, we seek to die to ourselves, to humble ourselves, to intentionally choose to make ourselves nothing, then in the end, we will be exalted. And the things that we thought that we lost in following him will truly be saved. This is the paradox. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. The way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. Now, this is an easy choice for the people who are already at the bottom, but it's much more difficult for the rich and the powerful. This is a plate of dirt. I want you to imagine that this is your plate of dirt. Okay? You have this plate of dirt. You own it. Now I'm going to offer you a trade. I'm going to offer to trade you a present for your plate of dirt. Raise your hand if you would take that trade. Okay, great. You don't know what the present is, right? I mean, you know that it's a present. It's a good present. I think, I think that it, it would, it, I, you're really going to like it. But you don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. But this plate of dirt, you know what that is. It's nothing. You don't care about that. You don't want the plate of dirt. It, in the end, it's a burden to you. So you would happily trade this plate of dirt for this present, even not completely understanding what it is. This is $10. Now pretend, just for a moment, that this $10 is yours. Will you trade this $10 for this present? That's not, that's not an open and shut deal. You gotta think about that. You gotta think about that for a minute. That is what Jesus is talking about here. The poor of this life have nothing. The broken, the mashed down, they recognize that everything that this life has to offer them is worthless. But the people who have a little bit of money and a little bit of comfort, when you say you've got, to, when Jesus says you've got to give this up, you've got to give this up to get the present, they look at it and they say, huh? I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to do that. But that's what he calls for us to do. To give up. To give up the things that this world finds important. To give up our very lives. So that we can find eternal life. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes about it this way. He compares, uh, uh, he says that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an, ingr- like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine, because he doesn't understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So when what you have in hand seems worthless, it's an easy trade to give up that in anticipation of something better. But when what you have seems to be valuable, it's a lot harder to give that up. Even if, even if you know that that gift, that that present, is something that is of infinite worth and value. So that is why when Jesus opened his ministry, he didn't say, I've come to proclaim good news to the rich, an affirmation of the powerful. Because the good news of the kingdom of God is the best news to those who have nothing. But for those who have something or think they have something, it requires leaving those things behind. And if you can't, if you won't, or if you don't, leave them behind? If you love and serve and trust those things more than you love and serve and trust the Lord your God, then you are not following Jesus. You're following those things instead. And those things, however good they might seem, however real, however tangible, however important they seem right now, those things are all passing away. It says in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, all the good shiny, all the good things, all the shiny things of this world, all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You cannot serve both God and the things of this world. Because the things of this world are passing away and will one day be gone completely. And not just gone, but they will stand as evidence against you. They will testify against you. But Jesus says instead, leave those things behind and follow me. Now, the solution, the answer here, is not to do more. That's one of the difficulties. For a lot of us, we were doers, right? And you present with a problem, and what do I need to do to fix this? But the answer there is to contemplate why it is that we don't love. Why did this rich man not love Lazarus the way that he was supposed to? Why do we not love our neighbors the way that we are supposed to? And all too often, I'm afraid that the answer is, well, I deserve it, and they, I've earned it. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it, and so I'm not going to give it to them. But if you remember just a few paragraphs back, that was what the older brother said to the father in the parable of the prodigal son. 
He said, this son of yours hasn't earned any of this, and I have. But as we talked about then, we have earned something. We've earned death. But what we are given through faith in Jesus Christ is life. But that life comes at a cost. Die to yourself, Jesus said, and live with him. And then, once we have done that, that means that our life that we are living isn't ours any longer. We have not earned that life. We do not deserve that life. And so all of the things that we have, they aren't ours anymore. But rather they are entrusted to us by God for use in the help and assistance of those who do not have what you have. This cuts a little. This is a little tough. And if this grates on you, then in the week to come, I would encourage you to consider whether or not you have understood the grace that God has given to you as an undeserved gift. Because if we are clinging to what it is that we think we deserve, to what it is that we think that we have earned, then we have every right to do that. We are allowed to do that. And if we are going to do that, then the standard is the perfect law of God. Do that, Jesus said, and you will live. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, and all of your strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to to stake your claim on what it is that you have earned and deserved, then that's the standard. That is what you need to do. Or, or, You can give up every claim to every part of everything that you have and take up the gift of grace that the Lord God offers to you in Jesus Christ. Because we cannot live under both grace and the law. We cannot lay hold of grace and hold on to the things that we have earned. We cannot serve two masters. But we have been given the wonderful the beautiful opportunity to follow Jesus. And he calls us, he calls you to follow him. He'll take care of the mess of the past. He'll take care of the mess of the present. He'll take care of the mess that is yet to come. But he calls us to follow him. And if we believe, if we believe that he is who he says he is, then that choice and everything that we leave behind in making it is worth it. Because when he calls us to follow him, he calls us to follow him into the kingdom of heaven, into eternal life. And when we arrive at the gates of the kingdom, we are welcomed in, not because of the good things that we have done, but because of the good things that Jesus has done for us. The evidence, the proof that we are believing and trusting rightly is that we will love those who are difficult to love. That we will love the people who don't love us in return. We will love those who don't have anything to offer us, even when it costs us something. Now, the rich man, he had no interest in helping anyone other than than himself. He did not end up in torment because of that. 
but his actions in this life revealed a heart that was entirely uninterested in the justice and the mercy and the love of God. But Lazarus, on the other hand, had no other hope. He had no other help. He had nothing apart from his enduring faith faith that God was indeed his help. Now we are one day each going to face the same reality as this parable. We are going to find everything in this world stripped away. And this, if we have believed God, if we have had faith in him, is the most wonderful news that we could ever possibly hope to hear. Because we are going to find in that moment all that we have ever truly needed. To know and to be known by our creator. To love and to be loved by him. Not with a, not with a worldly, broken, fractured sort of love. But love that is as it has always been from him. But if not, If in that day we have trusted in the things of this world, then that day is filled with nothing except for terror and torment. Because in that moment, all of the things that we have loved and trusted and worshipped will be brought to nothing. And we will be faced with nothing but the consuming flame of the holiness of God. And we can expect nothing but to be consumed by it. And the choice that we have made in our hearts, the the orientation of our hearts, the condition of our hearts is revealed in the ways that we choose to live our lives. Because when we have rightly understood and trusted the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, then we will love him in return. When we have rightly understood his love for us, then we will love our neighbors as ourselves. Not to make God happy, but because he, because he has loved us in that way and we just can't help it. We can't help but to love the people around us. The rich man ended this parable in torment, not because he was uncaring and dismissive to the poor, but rather because his heart was hard and he had rejected the love of God. And that hard heart had the fruit of uncaring. His uncaring attitude towards Lazarus was the fruit of his hard heart. And his hard heart had, in the end, the fruit of torment. But as long as you have breath, as long as you stand on this side of eternity, there is hope and there is salvation. Because Jesus is saying to you, follow me. Follow me into my peace. Follow me into my rest. I've paid the price. I've made the way. Come follow me. Leave behind your riches. Leave behind your power. Leave behind your aspirations. Follow me. Follow me and die to yourself that you might truly live. He says, come, follow me. And if that is a decision that you are making today for the first time, I would like to talk to you about that. Always happy to talk to you about that, whatever that needs to look like. So let's pray together today.
Lord, we are... Father, sometimes when we open the Bible, we find words of comfort. And sometimes we find words that make us uncomfortable, that challenge us. And Lord, for me, this is a difficult, challenging piece of Scripture. Because, Lord, I do want to follow you. But there is so much in my own heart that longs to follow after the things of this world. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would cut out those parts of my heart, those parts of my flesh that long for the things of this world and give me a new heart heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, a heart that loves you and loves my neighbor rather than loves myself. And I trust you. I trust your promises. I trust your word. I trust Jesus when he says that he is coming again. And I trust the promise of a new creation set free from its bondage to sin and to death. I look forward to that day with my whole heart. And I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, who died for me. Amen. Being a follower of Jesus is not an easy thing to do. But it's a decision that we need to make. And uh, I hope that you've decided to do that. But it's a daily thing, dying to yourself and uh, putting Christ first and others first and serving mankind and living as Jesus would want us to do. I'm going to close by singing the, the old hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Let's sing the first three verses. Let's stand as we close. We sing this, may the shot be our prayers this, this afternoon.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. Thank you.